This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 90, February the 19th, 1985. Well, to begin with, I'd like to call your attention to a very interesting article in American Heritage for February and March of 1985. This periodical is $4 a copy and is obtainable from... Uh, P.O. Box 977, Farmingdale, uh, New York, uh, 11737. Well, the article that it, I think is particularly interesting is one on the Battle of Athens by uh, Lones Cyber, S-E-I-B as in boy, E-R. It is about an incident that took place in McMinn County, Tennessee, in the 1940s. What had happened was that, little by little, a political machine had taken over the county and ruled it absolutely. Citizens were routinely abused and mistreated, and yet... It was impossible to change things because the ballots were controlled by the machine and any attempt to alter the situation was met with force. What happened was this. The World War II veterans returned home to find that their home place was no better than Nazi Germany had been. That was the comparison that came to mind. They were routinely arrested and beat up because they resisted, simply because one of the things that uh, made it possible to have an easy system of graft was any person who was arrested, even if taken to the uh, jail, and released almost immediately, was still, for having been held for a matter of only minutes, put on the records for a full day's remuneration from the state for food and lodging as a full-time prisoner. This made it quite an inducement for the political machine there and apparently elsewhere in the state, routinely to pick up anybody on any pretext in order to add hundreds upon hundreds of people to the rolls daily sometimes in order to pad their claims. Well, the G.I.s were uh, angry. They got together and decided to elect their own man as sheriff, one of their own number. What happened on election day was very obvious. Twenty special deputies were brought in by the machine. Hoodlums, in effect, men who were there to protect fraud. The ballot boxes were taken to the... Uh, sheriff's office and jail to be counted there to give whatever result they decided. It was very obvious the election was going to be stolen again. 
Many of the veterans were disheartened, but some of them roused them and said, Did we fight Nazis in order to surrender to their kind over here? What was the point of the war if this kind of thing can continue? So the men went for their guns. They went for dynamite. And in a battle that lasted a good deal of the night, they won. This was a night in August that they gained their victory and gave Athens, Georgia, uh, Athens, uh, Tennessee, a clean government. Now, the point of interest to me is this. The press then was exactly what the press is now. Remember the incident in New York City recently in the subway where a man shot four hoodlums with a long criminal record. Now he's facing trial for illegal possession of a gun. The hoodlums are not facing trial for what they did there. Well, the press has been uniformly against the man who did the shooting. So too in 1946 and after, the press nationally was almost unanimous in condemning the action of the G.I.s. The New York Times called it corruption, uh, that no matter how bad the situation was, they said there is no substitute in a democracy for orderly processes. This in spite of the fact that orderly processes had been shown to have been subverted again and again. Even religious periodicals condemned what happened in Athens. Syndicated columnists did the same. Moreover, for a year after, if there was the least bit of uh, a problem in Athens, a small, insignificant piece of crime, the press hailed it as evidence of the veterans' lawless regime there. Now, these were little uh, cases that normally would have created very little uh, notice, even in the local press. But now they were national news. It seems that the press could not give up on the situation and condemning it until finally it became such old news it was useless to do so. So much for the integrity of the press. Then another item of interest. In the Newsweek for February the 4th, 1985, there is a very interesting article on sexually transmitted diseases. We're used to the term VD, venereal diseases. The new term is STD, sexually transmitted diseases, because VD tends to refer to two things, syphilis and gonorrhea. And as the article points out, that there are 25 or so diseases now uh, classified as sexually transmitted diseases. 
Moreover, the number of cases of some of these which a short time ago were so rare that very few people had ever heard of them, the cases are growing by leaps and bounds. Let me quote this bit of uh, information. The statistics are awesome. One in four Americans between the ages of 15 and 55 will acquire STD at some point in his or her life. 27,000 cases are contracted every day, according to the American Social Health Association, and 10 million people visit doctors' offices and clinics every year for the problem, which now accounts for more than $2 billion annually in health care costs. Well, those are grim statistics. They tell us something of the seriousness of the problem. Moreover, the simple fact is that not all the publicity and education in the world is going to change the situation. It takes a theological and a moral perspective to make men good. Then this little item from the Education Update, and I quote, The NEA condemns any legislation which requires teachers, regardless of experience, to be tested in reading, writing, and mathematics, as well as their major fields of certification, unquote. In other words, it's dirty pool to uh, make your public school teachers prove that they can read and write. Then in All About Issues for December 1984, a pro-life publication, uh, there is an ugly uh, little notice calling attention to something, and this is a problem. The abortion culture is creating a highly immoral society. However, these very people who are creating a culture in which incest and child rape are increasing are calling those who oppose them fascists and are at times threatening them with charges of child abuse in order to disgrace anyone who opposes them. Here again, an item by uh, columnist Don Fetter, and I quote, We can either save the public schools or we can save education. To do both is an impossibility, unquote. Very well put. Now I want to turn to one book briefly, not a recent book, published in 77 by Roy W. Jastram, J-A-S-T-R-A-M of the University of California at Berkeley, the title The Golden Constant, The English and American Experience, 1560 to 1976. The author is not a classical economist, 
he is definitely not in favor of gold, but as a result of his research, he concludes, and I quote, Gold is a poor hedge against major inflation. Gold appreciates in operational wealth in major deflations. Gold is an abysmal hedge against yearly commodity price increases. Nevertheless, gold maintains its purchasing power over long periods of time, for example, half-century intervals. The amazing aspect of this conclusion is that this is not because gold eventually moves towards commodity prices, but because commodity prices return to gold, unquote. Now, the normal op opinion is that gold is a hedge against inflation rather than against deflation. Well, I would say it is both. The point he makes is valid, however, in that in a time of major inflation, gold being conservative may not reflect the inflationary rises as readily. Other commodities may do so much more spectacularly, and real estate may too. But all these other things are very volatile, so that you're likely to lose your shirt on them. Thus, gold does appreciate in inflation, but it is not as dramatic an increase as some of these other items. Now to something else. A very interesting book published some years ago in which at the time of its publication, I read hastily and returned to recently to read carefully. It is James Laver, L-A-V-E-R, Manners and Morals in the Age of Optimism, 1848 to 1914. This was published in 1966. And while Laver is definitely anti-Christian, he is a good scholar, and he has written a lively and sometimes quite important book. The year he begins with is 1848, the year of revolutions, a year when in England the poor were far worse off, perhaps, than those in countries like France, where the peasants still had some freedom. Moreover, according to a contemporary, in 1844, it was not safe to go out after dark if you had any money on you. Burglary, highway robbery, foul stealing because men were starving. Men would steal sheep to get sent away, unquote. This was a time, too, when there was not only hunger in England, but in Ireland, 15,000 people were dying of famine every day during one period of time. Now, what 
uh, Lever does that is very important. He calls attention to the character of the era. Most people, as they think of the Victorian era, tend to think of uh, a time of uh, a great deal of religious faith. Well, this is not true. There was a surface uh, Christianity, but religion had given way to moralism. Christianity had been replaced by a facade. As a matter of fact, the Victorian era was trying to cover up the uh, excessive decline, depravity, and whatnot of the era that preceded Victoria. Departing from the book a bit to give uh, some background, when Queen Victoria came to the throne, the monarchy was in very serious disrepute. The first two Georges in the previous century had... Uh, been wretches. George III tried to be a good uh, law-abiding Englishman to set an example, but during a good deal of his reign he was mentally incompetent. He had a condition produced by excessive inbreeding, a few generations of marriages between royal cousins, and the result was that something like I believe as much as 20 years of his long life, he was mentally incompetent. Then uh, his son George succeeded him, very much a rake. And then William, no better and much worse. So that the court and the crown were in disrepute. Meanwhile, as a result of the Wesleyan revival and a revival of the older Puritanism, there was a growing middle class hostile to this kind of thing, resenting the profligacy of the nobility and the royalty. And so when Victoria came to the throne as a girl, as a teenager, I believe, she was very firmly told by those around her that it was important to maintain a good public image, that the monarchy would be forever destroyed if anything of the old order continued. Now, Victoria herself was not the prim, proper kind of person uh, which most people assume she was. She projected that image Actually, she uh, liked uh, risque stories, provided there, was, there were no children around. Hence her famous remark, we are not amused, when one of her courtiers told a slightly risque story and Victoria noticed there was a young girl present. We must remember, too, that the characteristic note 
was therefore a facade, a facade of good religion and good morality, not the reality thereof. And hence the Victorian age, whatever it did, did with an eye to maintaining a good facade. For example, early in the reign of Victoria, nude bathing was commonplace. This prevailed at the beaches. Then they went to the other extreme, ankle-length swimming suits. Now, styles will do that. Had they suddenly become very prim and proper? Well, no. The hoop skirts were so designed that when a woman bent over, she revealed a great deal. They went from nudity to tease. Teasing. And it was a time when pornography was exceedingly popular, and London was the world center of pornography, at least in the Western world. All this is important to understand uh, in order to know what Victorianism was about. As Labor says, now returning to Labor, the problems of sanctification by grace, imputed righteousness, and predestination which had convulsed the 17th century were no longer debated with the same fervor. The emphasis now was on conduct and even religion was tinctured with utilitarianism. Although the old formulae continued to be used, the real driving force was no longer that a good life on earth ensured admission to heaven, but that a good life on earth led inevitability, in, in, inevitably to prosperity on earth. To some extent, of course, this was true. A man who eats sparingly, drinks moderately, works hard, and does not gamble is more likely to build up a successful business than a man of less sober habits. Honesty is the best policy might seem a somewhat cynical gloss on moral rectitude, but was this not also true? Well, as he goes on to show, this was the policy that now prevailed. And it meant that the whole perspective was warped. Men were not religious in terms of God, but religious in terms of how they would prosper in this world. So it was not Christianity, but moralism which prevailed. As a result, while the churches were attended because people believed that uh, it was good for you and good for society, and you went because you maintained a good public image. The life of faith was a waning one. Moreover, a very interesting fact was that now, because facade was all important, in everyday life, facade began to take over. And as Labour points out, dining took on the appearance of theater. We still have uh, traces of that in our society, but the emphasis was on 
putting on a good front, a good facade, so you dressed for dinner. The table was so spread that it would give an appearance of great wealth. Now consider this. This is from a contemporary publication, and it uh, describes what was offered to guests at a fairly unpretentious dinner given by a middle-class host. Let me read to you the idle items that were served. Carrots, thick round, crayfish, ham braised, casserole of rice with giblets, sea kale, fricando, jelly form, one turkey or two poults, mock turtle soup, Jerusalem artichokes fricasseed, savoy cake, macaroni pudding, trifle, fresh pie, stewed celery, apple pie and custard, rich white soup, fish, Lancmange, sweetbreads larded, stewed spinach, dried salmon and papers, chicken, pickled crab, young sprouts, ox rump and Spanish onions, cheesecakes, plural. Now, all you middle-class folks, why aren't you serving a table like that? It was like a theatrical pageant, Labor says, more than anything we should recognize as a dinner party. And the presentation of a dinner, he says, was still thought of in terms of decor. Now, this is important, because what happened now was that the drama of life was no longer theological. It was not creation by the triune God, the incarnation, our redemption, and all the drama of Passion Week, the resurrection, the last judgment. The great drama of life was no longer these theological facts. It was now your life. And therefore, everything you did had to convey the aura of theater. Your dinner was a pageant. You dressed to stress appearance. And, of course, we've got to remember that this was the time of the popularity of the silk top hats. These accentuated the height of a man. They gave him a dramatically commanding and handsome appearance. And everything that men and women wore had this emphasis. Theater to convey an image. We still have this because we have not returned to a theological perspective. Now, of course, the image that is projected, especially by the young, is sometimes rather far out. But it's still an image to be projected. Theater. And, of course, when uh, you see any rock and roll concert, what is the thing that stands out? If the music were sung without the theater, the kind of clothes the performers wear, the kind of uh, antics they perform, 
it would have much less appeal. Theater is everything in the modern world. It changes from the Victorian era to our era, but the emphasis is on theater. Man is the center, and man always on stage, performing. And Lever calls attention to this very, very tellingly. Well, there's much more in this book that is of interest, but uh, perhaps we'd better move on to something else. At the same time, by the way, the uh, poverty was very real in the Victorian era. So that, on the one hand, you had the theatrical display. On the other hand, you had actual starvation at times. On the other hand, as freedom prevailed, the economic situation began to uh, improve and the whole culture began to be a little more prosperous. Then Fabian socialism came in. Well, now I'd like to go to another book by Antony Bridge, Theodora, Portrait in a Byzantine Landscape. This was published in 78 in England and in 84 in this country by Academy Chicago Publishers, 425 North Michigan Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60611, cost 13.95. This is as favorable a book to Theodora as I have seen. On the other hand, it is ironic that uh, Antony Bridge the churchman in the Church of England, is not altogether good in the theological approach. In dealing with Theodora as a person, he does do an excellent job. But for one thing, what he calls her feminism was anything but feminism. He fails altogether to mention the remarkable work that Theodora did in assisting in the revision of the Roman legal code, the code of Justinian as we know it, her husband. And what Theodora did was to write into that code biblical law with respect to the family, making the only legal form of sexuality marital sex, and making inheritance entirely in terms of the family, not illegitimate children or mistresses. What we are seeing in our uh, generation is a revolt against the legal inheritance that we owe to Theodora. Well, I've talked about this more than once. But when it comes to the life of Theodora, he does a good job. 
and also does justice to Byzantium, a very much neglected and uh, underestimated society. Because Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire was so anti-Byzantine, until recently the image he conveyed of a stagnant society has prevailed. But Byzantium had the greatest culture perhaps in all of history and the longest in life for the life of a thousand years, better than a thousand years, and during most of it, very successful and prosperous. It was also a melting pot where there was almost no uh, racial prejudice. All kinds of races mingled there. And in fact, the emperors over the centuries came from a variety of peoples. There was briefly from in the 4th, 5th, and to the beginning of the 6th century, although it had died out by that time, one example of racial prejudice against the Goths, the North Germanic peoples generally, they were regarded as dangerous and as dirty and as criminal, and their uh, blonde hair and pink skin was generally regarded as repulsive. However, in time, they got over that prejudice. But as he said, during that era, for about two centuries, uh, to many Byzantine citizens, the sight of these immigrants with their fair hair, blue eyes, and pink skins was both disturbing and disgusting. But by the 6th century, the Goths had been assimilated by Byzantine society, and there was no longer any prejudice against them on account of the color of their skin, unquote. <laughs> History has some ironies. The... The fact is that we all owe so much to Theodora that it is high time we appreciated her. And this book, while not as good as it could be, is still a step in the right direction. So I am glad to see it uh, published. Theodora has had a great deal against her. First, her background, starting life as a child prostitute. Then, the fact that when she became converted, she was a monophysite, which the Orthodox then and now oppose, and rightfully so. Then the fact that she made biblical law basic to all the sexual laws of the West. These and other things have led to a great deal of hatred for her because she did succeed. She was a remarkable woman. One beautiful thing about this book, by the way, is that uh, Antony Bridge does justice to the marriage of Justinian and Theodora, emperor and empress, intensely in love, all their married life. 
intensely loyal to one another, and no one could endanger that relationship. Now to still another book, very interesting one, now out of print, first published in 1980 by and written by Shirley Blumenthal and Jerome S. Ozer, O-Z-E-R. The title, Coming to America, Immigrants from the British Isles. A great many books have been written on the various immigrants that came to this country. But this book is different in that it deals with one group of immigrants we rarely think about, those from the British Isles. But they were a major part of the country. In fact, they made up the bulk of it for some time. On the other hand, because when we think of the British Isles, we erroneously think of the English and not the Scots, the Welsh, the Scotch-Irish, and the Irish, we get very serious misapprehensions. For example, we assume that this country was English at the time of the War of Independence. And, as this book points out, this was emphatically not true. In the decades before the War of Independence, the American people had become increasingly un-English. There were many English. But there were also Scots, Scotch-Irish, Irish, and Welsh, all living in the colonies and working together to a degree unknown in the British Isles. The hostilities that existed there did not exist here. At the same time, there were some other groups, Dutch, German, French, and Scandinavians, as well as the American Indians. As a result, the colonies could scarcely be called English in 1776. They were Americans. They had a loyalty to the colonies where they lived. They had left Britain for a variety of reasons, some of which involved a hostility to Crown and Parliament. As a result, they were a different people. They had different loyalties. As a result, they were ready to rebel. We too often concentrate our attention on Virginia, and with good reason, it was important. But Virginia had key figures, as did Massachusetts, who were predominantly English, but the fact that men like Washington and Adams and others had an English background did not eliminate the fact that all the others around them, or to a large degree all of the others around them, were un-English. They had no desire to be absorbed 
into the English. On top of that, as the authors point out, and I quote, some colonists of English descent were as much as three or four generations removed uh, from regarding England as home. And since most English immigrants had come to America to escape economic hardship or political and religious oppression in England, their love for England was not great. This was even more true of the colonists whose roots were in Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Furthermore, by the middle of the 18th century, the Dutch who had settled New Amsterdam had been absorbed into the English colonies. New arrivals from continental Europe were being integrated into the colonial population. These people had no ties to England. It is very true that these people had no ties to England. It is true, however, that there were some who had ties to England. These people were those who, while they did not turn Tory, still felt close to England and had before the war returned there periodically or sent their sons back there. What developed after the War of Independence was that there was an English minority who prided themselves on their Anglo-Saxon heritage. I'm going to say something that uh, may startle you. Nobody has ever delved into this. But most of the important conspiracies in this country have been a product of these people who prided themselves on their specifically Anglo-Saxon inheritance and were hostile to other elements as they came in. And so they created one society after another designed to protect the character of the country as they saw it. If you want to see a recent example, read some of the material that Anthony Sutton is producing now on the order which exists today and the men who are in it. They all have this kind of Anglo-Saxon background. Well, that was a digression to return to coming to America. These people had every hostility towards England when troops were quartered and they were subjected to the indignities that quartering troops means. Today we forget that quartering troops was a way of breaking a people. It was also a way of caring cheaply for your troops. So that when England sent over troops to be quartered in the colonies and the cities, it meant that the soldiers were parceled out to the various homes. In those homes, they were the law. They could take what they chose, including the women, and did. And you had better believe it, because the colonists were enraged over this and charged the crown 
with the ravishing of their women, the phrase they used. Well, after the war, the immigration from Britain began to uh, reassert itself, and between 1820 uh, and 1930, four and a quarter million peoples immigrated from England, Scotland, and Wales. An even larger number, probably, from Ireland. This helped give a continuing British character to the United States. But it meant that British character was more British than English. The Irish alone were a tremendous number. Now, it is interesting that uh, with the Irish came bitter, vicious bigotry and prejudice and anti-Catholic sentiments. Prior to the coming of the Irish in great numbers at the time of the famine, the Irish were well accepted, and the Catholic churches were highly regarded. There was no problem between Protestants and Catholics. As a matter of fact, the Catholics tended to have a certain prestige in the colonies and their social status. But with the influx of masses of starving Irish, bigotry sent in. The old line Catholics were not happy with the new Catholics. The Protestants were afraid the country was going to become Catholic in no time at all. And some of the most vicious bigotry in this country was launched against the Irish. In some respects, it can be said that it was perhaps worse than anything the blacks suffered in this country. There was another thing. At first, of course, politics was very anti-Irish, and parties were formed that had their open or hidden aim to deal with the influx of the Irish. After a while, of course, the Irish took over the politics and became some of the most expert politicians this country has seen. Now, both before the Irish and after the Irish, in order to build up power, a practice began which continued into this century, and for all I know it may still be practiced, naturalization on arrival. This has been uh, recorded not only by these authors, but by Gustavus Myers in his history of Tammany Hall, but I have known persons to whom this happened. When any immigrant landed, their addresses were given immediately to the political bosses of New York or Boston or whatever other city they landed in. The next day, the paddy wagons would go around and pick up all these newly arrived immigrants. 
and you had better believe they were frightened because they couldn't understand why the police had picked them up. They thought perhaps they might be deported for some reason or other. They were taken to the courthouse and were immediately sworn in as naturalized citizens and told how they were going to vote. I recall one man telling me that uh, the day after he arrived in Boston, he was rounded up and uh, taken to the courthouse, and he understood English. So when the judge began to uh, swear them in as citizens, he, he told the judge, he said, Your Honor, I only arrived in this country yesterday. Naturalization is supposed to take five years. I've looked forward to being a uh, uh, citizen, but not illegally. And the judge gaveled him down and said, One more sound out of you, and you're going to be held in contempt of court and be sent to prison. And he said after it was over, the big Irish cop who had rounded him up said uh, that tomorrow he'd be around to pick him up to take him to vote for Teddy Roosevelt, that grand American. Well, now to uh, a little item in the May 1984 National Geographic. Something I never knew. It's about work in Pompeii, archaeologists uh, digging up one area after another continuously. And one of the skeletons they recovered was of a woman, Portia. They named her. And uh, he asks a question uh, of Dr. Bissell, one of the archaeologists, and about Portia. And she replied, Portia was about 48, certainly not good-looking. She had extreme buck teeth. Also certain of her pelvic bones show rather unusual and unexpected changes. I do not like to make accusations across 2,000 years, but Portia's pelvic bones resemble those I once saw from a modern prostitute, unquote. Very interesting. I'd never known that prostitution has consequences of that sort. But that's the plain statement. Then I'd like to call your attention to the February 1985 Harper's with a good, an exceptionally good article by Tom Bethel, The Taxonomic Case Against Darwin. Very important article. Well, one of the uh, interesting books of late was by Peter Gollenbach, entitled Bums, An Oral History of the Brooklyn Dodgers, published by G.P. Putnam, Putnam in 1984. 
It has a number of hilarious stories about the Dodgers. Unfortunately, the best stories are lost. One of them is cited because the author is a younger man and he has no knowledge of the Dodgers of the 20s and 30s. At one time, of course, the Dodgers, when they were really known as uh, the bums and erratic in their performance, had three men on third base as a result of a confusion in base running. Babe Herman was the man <laughs> who was most remarkable in those days. A man of intelligence, but... Uh, given to eccentricities. And Babe Herman, at one point, was being interviewed by a newsman, and Babe Herman uh, protested the fact that there, he was always being portrayed as some kind of nut. And he said, you make me look like a clown all the time. Replied, Gordon, I don't make you look like a clown. I only write about you looking like a clown. Herman was genuinely upset. I'm serious, he said. I know you write real funny stuff about me. I even have to laugh at it myself. But give me a break, will you? Look, I'm a ball player. I make a living playing ball, like you make yours writing. I got a wife and kid to support. If you keep on making fun of me, it's going to hurt me. People will think of me as a joke ball player, and it will hurt my reputation with a ball club. Do you see what I mean? Gordon said he understood. I never thought of it that way, babe. From now on, I promise you, I will stop poking fun at you. Herman thanked him. He fumbled in his pockets and pulled out the butt of a cigar and stuck it into his mouth. Gordon reached for matches. Herman puffed a couple of times, and smoke began to rise from the end of the cigar. Never mind, said Herman, it's lit. Gordon couldn't believe Herman had been carrying around a lighted cigar in his pocket. It's all off, Gordon screamed. Nobody who carries around lighted cigars in his pocket can tell me he isn't a clown. <laughs> well, one more story from this book. Uh, told... Uh, reasonably well, has to do with a famous pitcher, one of the all-time greats among the Dodgers, uh, a man who came from the Deep South, looked like Jack Armstrong, the All-American boy, and was... Uh, A picture of innocence, but a very, very uh, foul-mouthed character and very much given to skirt chasing. He uh, played a year and was a sensation and then was drafted, went to the South Pacific, got married before he left, a very fine girl, a very devout and godly girl. And, of course, like all Southerners, Kirk Higby went to church. That didn't mean he was a Christian. Well, when he arrived home after the war, a letter had uh, preceded him, a letter from a nurse describing their passionate lovemaking and her obvious assumption that he was unmarried. 
And, of course, his wife read the letter. So when he arrived, he had an angry wife. But he told her, Honey, it wasn't me, it was some other guy. You know how it is. If you're a famous ball player, everybody pretends that uh, they are you so they can make it with the girls. And this is a problem all of us ball players have. Well, she bought that. So after that, whenever he was on the trip and he got involved and there was some uh, kickback or knowledge of it, he always said, Honey, you know it's an old story with us ball players." Fellas go into a bar and they say, I'm so-and-so, and and everybody is excited to have a famous athlete in their presence, and he makes it with the girls, and then we get the blame. Well, that excuse worked beautifully with him, so it became routine with him. It wasn't me, it was some other guy. Once when his wife was away... During the off-season, he brought a woman into the house and took her upstairs into the bedroom. And he did not hear his wife returning home unexpectedly a day in advance. She came, walked into the bedroom, and was horrified. This gave him, her shock gave him enough time to uh, pull on his pants, grab his shirt, and head down the stairs. But the force of habit was so strong, when he got to the bottom of the stairs, he turned around, his wife came charging after him and was at the head of the stairs, and he shouted back up, Honey, you've got to believe me, it wasn't me, it was some other guy. (laughs) A man like that, he's still living, should go into politics. (laughs) With a line like that, he would go a long ways. Well... Enough of that. I have a number of other things, but our time is running out. I'll save them for next time. It has been good to be with you. We do enjoy hearing from you about subjects that uh, interest you. In a couple of months, we're going to have a special treat for you. And, uh, well, I won't say any more about it. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.